Hello, and thank you so much for joining me. I am Madam Butterfly, and you are listening to Frequency Bay. I definitely hope that everyone under the sound of my voice right now had a wonderful weekend. I hope that everyone was safe and relaxed and happy if you were able to get the chance to do that. Um, So today, uh, I have a lecture for this episode by uh, Gambora Matei. how emotions affect our cognitive functioning. Uh, this comes from the YouTube channel, Christine Wong, and it says for 11 years, or actually for 12 years, Mr. Matei worked in Vancouver's downtown uh, east side with patients challenged by hardcore drug addiction, mental illness, and HIV, including a Vancouver's supervised injection site. With over 20 years of family practice and palliative care, experience and intensive knowledge of the of the latest findings of leading uh, edge research Dr. Matei is a sought after speaker and teacher regularly addressing health professionals educators and lay uh, audiences throughout North America with a good understanding of how our cognitive capabilities can be in can be impaired or affected uh, everyone and especially all mothers must watch to understand first what was what has nothing what has happened to us um, and then can understand what has happened to our children with this understanding we can be more aware of our behaviors and challenges in our um lives and thereafter can be decide if we uh if there is a need to seek intervention with the issues we have on on hand and on our plate so this should be pretty good i'm definitely excited to get in to dig into this today because he's certainly one of my top favorite 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 um public speakers book writers all of the above Internet dads, the whole bit. <laughs> Can you hear me at the back? Can you hear me at the back now? Yes? Okay, I'll assume that you can. What the introductions don't usually mention, and I actually used to be a high school teacher. I taught high school for three years in North Vancouver and decided that was way too stressful, so I went to medical school instead. <laughs> I went to work in the downtown east side with... Vancouver, I thought that would be a relief. <laughs> so I know yeah. what many of you are up against. It was uh, in 1994, well, let me backtrack a bit. Today you're getting many speakers, maybe more speakers than, than I would think is helpful. That's up, to you. That's up to you to decide. It's just that I think it takes the brain a while to acquire new information and to incorporate it. And to tell you the truth, uh, with all respect to the wonderful organizers of this event, I'd much rather be talking for an hour and a half than for 45 minutes. Not, not out of the pleasure of hearing myself speak, although that is considerable, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but because I, I just want the space to communicate. Mm. And one of the things that is less and less available in our society is space to communicate. Wow. Um, and, uh, he just said a mouthful there. Space to communicate. Wow. I love that. That's also happening to us as a culture. It's just impossible for a culture to 
adjust to the rapidity of change that's going on technologically. So that we don't, we don't have time to absorb, integrate, and process what's going on. And that's part of the problem that we're facing as healthcare givers, as educators, as health workers, as parents, and certainly as children growing up in this society. Well, my subject is the emotional basis of cognition. It was in 1994 that Antonio, Antonio Damasio, a neuroscientist, published his book, Descartes' Error. And here's what he says. And he's talking about learning, and he's, he's saying that he used to assume that learning, cognition, intellectualization was a separate um, entity and a separate process from emotionality. And, you know, in um, Latin, homo sapiens, the, the name of our species, the man who knows. So we're kind of assuming an intellectual definition of humanness when we say human homo sapiens. But, but what uh, Damasio said in his seminal work is in 20 years ago now almost, is that cognition is actually something that rests on an edifice of emotion. So that the basis of learning and cognition is actually our emotional uh, being. And that emotional being is very much connected to our visceral states, the states in our liver, of our stomach, of our heart, of our lungs of our internal organs, and that the mind itself and the brain, the brain itself is, is an organizational um, entity that brings together information that's coming at it from the outside and from the inside at the same time. And in fact, the brain receives many more messages from the inside of the body than sometimes it does from the outside. And the messages that it receives from the inside has a lot to do with how well we can uh, engage the external world. So that means our capacity to pay attention and to learn have a lot to do with what's happening internally on the visceral and emotional level and what our gut feelings are telling us. And so in a society where people are less and less connected to their gut feelings, uh, there's less and less engagement with the realities of the external world. Even though we're externally focused, we are externally focused in a less efficient manner because of that disconnect. And let me answer this question and ask for a show of hands. How many of you have had the experience of having a strong gut feeling about something, ignoring it, and being sorry afterwards? Put your hand up if you've had that experience. Okay. Now, you see that just about everyone raise their hands. Now, how many of you have had the experience, the adverse experience, of having a powerful gut feeling, ignoring it, and being glad afterwards? Now, we have one or two hands in an audience of many hundreds. In other words, there's something about gut-level cognition that is absolutely valid, and we ignore it at our peril. But that's a function of living in a society that's, that, that actually cuts us off from our gut feelings. So that there's something internal that knows that is much stronger than what intellect is telling us. In any contest between the internal knowledge and the intellectual knowledge, 99% of the time, that internal knowing will be accurate. And the intellectual rationalization will be inaccurate. So Damasio says, the lower levels in the neural edifice of reason are the same ones that regulate the processing of emotion and feelings 
along with the body functions necessary for the organism's survival. So this is calling us to have a view of knowledge and learning and cognition that takes into account emotionality and our internal body states. In turn, these lower levels maintain direct and mutual relationships with virtually every bodily organ, thus placing the body directly within the chain of operations that generate the highest reaches of reasoning, decision-making, and by extension, social behavior and creativity. Now, what is the situation in North America? The situation is that we have millions of children being diagnosed with this, that, and the other. And my profession is really good at creating new diagnoses. So every time the DSM comes out, there's a whole bunch of new diagnoses in it with which you can label people now. So um, I'll give you one example. A common one is ADHD these days, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. In the United States, uh, according to the latest figures, there's at least 3 million kids who are receiving um, stimulant medications for ADHD. In Canada, the number of prescriptions for stimulant medications has gone up 43% in the last five years. Let alone the hundreds of thousands of kids who are receiving antipsychotic medications. Not to control psychosis, which they don't have, but to control what? To control their behaviors. And we don't even know what the long-term effects are of antipsychotics on the, on the developing human brain. The early indications are nothing positive. So what we've got here is a massive social experiment in the chemical control of children's brains. Because we don't know what else to do. And so when children don't learn the way they do, or sorry, the way we expect them to, and they don't behave the way we expect them to, we have two dominant responses. The one response is to medicalize it. Let's call it a medical name and let's medicate it. And by the way, as a physician, I'm not against medications. I've taken them, I've prescribed them. This is not a rant against medications. But I'm talking about the limitations of the medical approach, and I'm talking about the overwhelming domination of pharmacological approaches to childhood issues. So there's that response, the medical approach, and then there is the behavioral approach. And the behavioral approach says, what's wrong with here is what's wrong here is the behavior itself. So let's fix and control the behavior. And that dominates psychology these days, behavioral approaches. So the problem is the behavior. So when a child is acting out, let's control the behavior. And parenting books will tell you, when the kid is doing this, the parent should do that. The child acts out, and the parents then should have some way of managing that acting out. Here's the thing about acting out. Look at the phrase itself. It's a good English phrase. It has a very specific meaning. We act out, and it doesn't mean that we're behaving badly. We act out when we don't have the language to say something in words. That's what acting out actually means. So in a game of charades, where you're not allowed to speak, you have to act out to deliver your message. If you landed in a country where nobody spoke your language, and you have to portray hunger, you have to act out. Kids are acting out all the time. And our response is to control the behavior. We respond to the form of the message rather than to the content of it. And then we wonder 
why it doesn't work. Now, in a Toronto uh, school uh, three years ago, I think it was two years ago, there was an eight and nine-year-old boy who ended up in handcuffs because the cops were called. And what happened was that this kid had, uh, I think, Asperger's, one of these diagnoses, which is, um, uh, involves poor social processing and poor impulse control, amongst other features. And this kid had been bullied, and he was very upset. He was screaming. I don't know what he was doing. The teachers, in their wisdom, decided that what he needed was to be isolated. And how often we do that to kids, we isolate them. Well, he was put in a room by himself, at which point he really freaked out. And neurophysiologically, he needed something very, very different. And I'll come to that later. But what they did is isolated him, at which point he started throwing things, and I think destroying the furniture, and that's where they called the police. And the police handcuffed this nine-year-old. And the debate afterwards was, oh, was the police right to handcuff the kid? But that wasn't the right question. When you call the police, they're going to do what the police do, which is to restrain. That's what they're trained to do. The real question was, how come that well-meaning, and I assume well-educated teachers in a major school system had no understanding that what that child needed at that moment was emotional closeness with a nurturing adult to regulate his neurophysiology. That's what needed at that moment. And these incidents are not totally isolated. I mean, handcuffed. Dr. Turn something on. was emotional closeness with a nurturing adult to regulate his neurophysiology. That's what needed at that moment. And these incidents are not totally isolated. I mean, handcuffing is isolated, but you know, it was in British Columbia here eight or nine years ago. There was a case of a hyperactive kid in an elementary school and the teacher dealt with it by taping his head to the bench, Ooh. to his desk. This is how she learned control his hyperactivity. Now, there's another way to understand all this, which is that these behaviors rest on an emotional edifice, and when the behaviors are not such as meet uh, our standards or expectations and don't serve the child, we actually have to ask ourselves, what is happening for that child emotionally at that moment? Now, and, some, and, and let's face it, there's many, many more kids who are having behavior problems, impulse regulation problems, body regulation problems, emotional outbursts, difficulties learning. This is burgeoning in our society. But the question is why? Is it because some genetic disease is somehow mysteriously spreading in the population? Or something is happening in children's lives that is undermining their capacity to socially interact well, to pay heed, to pay attention, to be emotionally regulated, to have impulse regulation, to be able to regulate their stresses. Now the prefrontal cortex, you've been hearing about the brain today, I'm sure, and the prefrontal cortex has nine very um, important functions. It regulates the body itself, the prefrontal cortex being the mammalian cortex, the one that's latest to develop uh, evolutionary speaking. 
and it really is what distinguishes us from other animals. It regulates the body. It regulates attuned communication with others. It is responsible for emotional balance. It all allows us response flexibility. So response flexibility means that if you say something to me that might upset me, then instead of reacting by screaming back at you, I can actually say, oh, okay, what's happening for you that you said that to me? And do I really have to take it personally? Then I can respond rather than react. Providing insight, providing empathy, the modulation of fear so that when something happens, then the fear circuits in the brain start taking over. Something in the prefrontal cortex will override that fear circuit saying, okay, calm down. You can actually handle this. Intuition and morality. Now, Dr. Rick Hansen will follow my talk, which I think is perfect, and he'll be able to tell you that all nine of these modalities, these nine functions of the prefrontal cortex, are actually supported by mindful awareness practice. And seven of them, at least, and here's the key, are supported and developed by nurturing parenting. And I think all nine of them are. Because what we're actually coming down to in our society, and the reason that so many children are having so many problems is for no other cause but that the parenting environment has become so stressed so that parents are no longer able to provide their children with the environment that these functions and the prefrontal circuits that serve these functions can develop properly. That's why the epidemic. It's not bad parenting. It's not um, the drinking water. It's not some genetic disease that's spreading. What's going on is that the conditions for healthy brain development of the prefrontal cortex are less, less and less available for children. Let me turn on to an article that appeared in the journal Pediatrics, which is the official journal of the American Pediatric Association. And this article appeared in February 2012. And it summed up very nicely the accumulated knowledge of the past several decades. And the article is from the Harvard Center on the Developing Child. They say, growing scientific evidence demonstrates that social and physical environments that threaten human development because of scarcity, stress, and I stress the word stress here, or instability can lead to short-term physiologic and psychological adjustments that are necessary for immediate survival and adaptation, but which may come at a significant cost to long-term outcomes in learning, behavior, health, and longevity. In other words, the things that young human beings have to um, develop as adaptive mechanisms to survive early stress will help them endure that early stress, but in the long term will interfere with health and learning, adaptation, social relationships, and even longevity. Now, I was very glad to see that article appear because uh, when I was diagnosed myself with ADHD back in my, in, in, in my mid-1950s, sorry, not mid-1950s, in my mid-50s, not that old. <laughs> I 
never bought into the idea that we're dealing with a genetic disease here. That made no sense to me. And here's why it made no sense to me. First of all, if anything is spreading in a population that quickly, it can't be genetic. Because genes don't change in a population over 10 years, over 20 years, not even 100 years. So whatever it is, it's not genetic. Secondly, I knew something by then. And what I knew, that tuning out, which is the hallmark, remember the, the prefrontal cortex function, one of them is regulation of the body. Well, I didn't know that. But here's what I did know. I knew that tuning out is not a disease. On the contrary, what actually is tuning out? Why did nature give us the capacity to tune out, to dissociate? Why do you think that is? It's a survival mechanism. It's a survival mechanism. If, if I were to stress you right now by threatening you <coughs> or just uh, insulting you, insulting your dignity as a human being, you'd have three healthy options. One would be to walk out. Escape. Flight. The other would be to fight. To challenge me. Stand up for yourself. And if for whatever reason you are in, unable to engage in either of those modalities, you have a third one. There are hundreds of people here in the room with you. You could seek help. You could say, please help me. This guy's bugging me. But if none of those were available to you and the stress was Im immense and intense, what your mind would do, what your brain would do was escape from that. And one of the ways of escaping would be to just dissociate, to tune out. So tuning out is not a disease. It's a, it's a nature-given uh, capacity that we have to escape overwhelming stress. That's what I knew. What I didn't know and found out really almost by accident was that the human brain itself, the very circuits in the prefrontal cortex that I mentioned, those, those functions, that develops under the impact of the environment. So that which circuits develop, which prefrontal circuits develop, and how the emotional circuits develop depends very much on the early environment. And the example is that of vision. If you don't see light for five years after birth, it doesn't matter how good your eyes are, how good your genes are, you'll be blind for the rest of your life because it takes light waves to promote the development of the visual circuits. It's that simple. With the emotional self-regulation circuits that are not functioning very well on a lot of kids these days, with the attentional circuits that are not functioning very well, with the impulse regulation circuits, with the stress regulation circuits, it's the same thing. Just like light is needed for vision, the right environment is needed for those circuits to develop. I'm talking about the physiological development. I'm talking about the neurochemistry of the brain. I'm talking about oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, gabapentin. Not gabapentin, but yeah. Um, all the important uh, neurochemicals that, that uh, modulate our behaviors. The quantities of them, their interaction, the circuits that modulate them, they depend on the environment for their development. And the human brain is particularly vulnerable because unlike other animals, most of our brain development occurs after birth. Not before, but also before. So we also know, we also know that already what happens in pregnancy has significant impact on the developing brain of the child. So the more stressed women are, 
the more likely the kids are going to be affected. So if we're looking at the preponderance of autism and, and all kinds of other childhood conditions, what are we looking at? We're looking at the impact of stress on the parenting environment, including on pregnant women. A study after 9-11 looked at the uh, stress hormone levels of one-year-old infants whose, parent, whose mothers had suffered post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of 9-11 during pregnancy. And these children at one year of age had abnormal stress hormone levels, which means that their stress regulation circuitry had been negatively affected by their mother's stress during pregnancy, which means they're more prone for addictions and behavior problems, by the way, and learning difficulties. Because too much cortisol, the stress hormone, interferes with learning and actually shrinks the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain responsible for retaining memory. And one could speak to you for at least an hour and really a, whole, a day just on the effects of prenatal stress. Then there was a study out of um, UBC here, either last year or the year before. I think it's last year, 2012. They looked at the genetic functioning. We have this whole idea that genes regulate things and that genetics control things. They do not. Genes are turned on and off by the environment. That study is called epigenetics. Epigenetics is how genes are regulated by the environment. So that in both in human studies and animal studies, we know that even if people have certain genes that might predispose them to addictions, if they're brought up in nurturing environments, those genes are turned off. So this UBC study looked at 150 genes in teenagers, the expression, which is the activity of the genes. 120 of them had been affected by stress on the mother in the first few years of life. 30 had been affected by stress on the father in the preschool years. So that the stresses on the parents translate into the genetic expression of the teenagers a decade later. So that the environment actually modulates the activity of genes. And to return to this Harvard article then, um, I, I can't give you all the information on brain development and, uh, and uh, the environment, but they summarize it very nicely in this article. And they write, the architecture of the brain is constructed through an ongoing process that begins before birth, continues into adulthood, and establishes either a sturdy or a fragile foundation for all the health, all the health learning and behavior that follow. Then they say, the interaction of genes and experiences literally shapes the circuitry of the developing brain and is critically influenced by the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships, particularly in early childhood years. So the key issue is the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships. So that is a spectrum. On the one hand, you can have the calm, non-depressed, emotionally present, attuned parent. And on the other, you can have the parent who abuses the child, traumatizes the child. Now, on the downtown east side of Vancouver, over a 12-year period, I did not have a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. So the people that our government is jailing in large numbers are people that have been traumatized as children. That's just the society that we live in. In between 
that calm, attuned, non-stressed spending environment, which incidentally is what people offer themselves when they practice mindful awareness modalities, as Dr. Hansen will tell you. Yet they're giving themselves that attuned, quiet attention. That's why it works. In between that and the extreme of parents who actually act their own trauma out on their children by traumatizing them, there's a whole range. And in our society, that range is increasingly moving towards stress. Because parents no longer have the support they used to have, they no longer have the extended family, clan, tribe, village. There was an article out of Notre Dame University a couple of years ago. They looked at the optimal parenting environment, and it was the hunter-gatherer tribe. Because in the hunter-gatherer tribe, parents were present physically. Multiple adults of multiple generations were connecting emotionally with kids. The parents were always with the kids, and so on and so forth. Now, most parents, it is not that this has nothing to do with bad parenting. It has to do with stress parenting. The studies, again, are very clear. When parents are stressed, they're less able to attune to their kids. The less able to attune to their kids, the more likely their children's brain will not develop optimally. And that's what educators you're up against these days. Now, when we look at Furthermore, what the impact, impact of early stress is on the child's brain and the ch child's capacity to learn, what are we up against? Well, we're up against those coping mechanisms that the child adapted. So one coping mechanism was the dissociation, the tuning up. The problem is that when a child has to adapt these modalities chronically early in childhood, that gets programmed into the brain. And then 10 years later, when Mike is 55 years later, that person is diagnosed with ADHD. Because there are times in the first year of life when every second, so consider this space of time, millions of circuits are being laid down, millions of connections are being made. It's that rapid, it's that uh, intense, the brain growth. So if, if stress happens in a parent's life during that period, if the mother is depressed, for example, or the father overworked, or there's unresolved family issues, that will have an impact on the child. We're not talking about learned behaviors here. We're talking about emotional-based coping mechanisms. Now, that's one way to, uh, the brain protects itself from stress. Another way that the brain protects itself from stress is a kind of emotional shutdown, of not being aware of feelings, incidentally, when you all put your hand up and said that you'd had the experience of having stronger things and ignoring it, you were telling the story of your childhood. Do you know that? And the story of your childhood was is that your authentic emotions were not responded to by your parents. Not because they didn't love you, but because they themselves were too stressed. And that means you disconnected because it was too painful to have feelings that were not validated by the world. So then you learn to dissociate your gut feelings from your intellect. And then you became stupid. In a sense of the inner knowing no longer being available to you. Now, at the extreme case of that, you have people who are totally shut down emotionally. The problem with shutting down emotionally is you stop learning. Emotional learning stops when you shut down. So you shut down to protect yourself. But for development, you need vulnerability. Vulnerability from the Latin word vulnerare, vulnerare, to wound. 
So vulnerability is a capacity to be wounded. And nothing grows when it's not vulnerable. A tree doesn't grow where it's hard and thick. It grows where it's soft and green and vulnerable. A crustacean animal like a crab cannot grow encased in a hard shell. To grow, it has to mold, make itself soft and vulnerable. Same with children. When children shut down emotionally, they have difficulty learning, especially from negative experience. So they keep repeating the same stuff over and over again, and despite the negative consequences, they learn nothing from it. And then the adult gets exasperated. I've told him a thousand times not to do it, and he's still doing it. Well, the proper response is, if you've told him a thousand times, and he's, st and he's still doing it, who's got the learning problem here? <laughs> Clearly, well... Clearly what we have to do, clearly what we have to do is we have to find out what's going on for that child. The third way of, emo of, of emotional self-protection is detachment from relationship, and particularly from relationships that threaten you. So a lot of kids detach from adult relationships, and by default, as we point out, Gordon Newfold and I in our book, Hold On To Your Kids, they connect to other kids. And, and when that happens, learning also stops. Because for learning, what you need? You need curiosity. But curiosity is vulnerable. When you are curious, you care about something. When you're emotionally shut down, you don't care about anything. It's boring. It doesn't matter. Number one. You also learn from trial and error. But for trial and error, you have to have the vulnerability to admit that something doesn't work and to be sad about it. When you're defended against sadness, when nothing matters, you're not going to learn from negative experiences. You're not going to try something again. Instead, you're going to say, I don't care. And you just give up. That I don't care of the frustrated child. People learn through attachment. In other words, when you are emotionally attached to somebody, you want to emulate them. You want to be like them. You want to learn from them. Well, that's fine in societies when children still attach to adults. But what happens in a society when children emotionally are connected to each other so much that they can't bear to be without each other for one moment, and every second that they're not in physically in each other's presence, they have to be testing one another. That's not a technological problem. It's an attachment problem. It also means that they're not learning from, uh, from the adults who can actually tell them what life is about. They're learning from immature creatures. So these are the consequences of those early adaptive uh, mechanisms on learning. So I'll need to be summing this up very, very soon. What is required then for the learning capacity of the young human being to really express itself? Well, again, a bit of neurophysiology, if you will. The human being has three fundamental ways to respond to the environment. And, and these follow an evolutionary ladder, if you will. Our fundamental mode, or at least I should say our more, most primitive mode, is the reptilian one. And the reptilian brain is our brain stem, low done in the brain. And we share that with reptiles. Now, reptiles being creatures who are cold-blooded, 
who um, cannot expend a lot of energy, who have to conserve energy, their method of dealing with an environmental challenge is to freeze, sink under the water so they don't have to use up too much oxygen, conserve energy. And that's the function of certain brain circuits, which when activated will put us into a freeze mode. That's fine for the reptile. It can be deadly for the human being. And it certainly interferes with learning. The second mode is the mammalian flight or fight response, which happens higher up in the brain. And it activates the sympathetic nervous system, allowing the so-called flight or fight response, which involves adrenaline and cortisol, the stress hormones, which uh, give us more sugar, so we have more energy, which in increase our heart rate, so we have more blood pumping to our brain and our muscles and so on. That's all fine. But the problem is that these are both defensive modes. And the human organism can be in defensive mode or growth mode, learning mode, but not both at the same time. So that the mode in which we're in a learning phase, when I'm paying attention to another person, when I'm listening to the message that they're delivering, when my middle ear muscles are activated in such a way as to take in verbal information, when my head turns towards you so I can observe your face and respond to your facial expressions, when I'm taking in and responding to the prosody, the modulation of your voice, that's yet another brain circuit. That's yet another brain circuit. And it activates a totally different set of nerves in a different part of the nervous system. And that's called the social engagement mode. And, that, and the nerves that regulate our social engagement behavior are very much connected to the nerves that carry information from our viscera, from our internal organs, and the nerves that at the same time regulate our breathing, our breath, whether it's shallow or deep whether our airways are narrow or broad, and our heart rate. So again, to go back to what Damasio said about that unity between the internal uh, environment and our capacity to learn, modulated through the emotional apparatus. And that's called the social engagement mode. But to be in a social engagement mode, we have to, we have to feel safe. We have to feel emotionally safe. Now let me tell you, as a physician interested in ADHD, and that was the subject of my first book, how many adults in their 40s and 50s I saw in my office who spoke with choked tones and sometimes tears in their eyes about something that a teacher had said to them decades ago that was humiliating. And the teacher meant nothing harmful by it. They might even be trying to humorously support the kid. But as recent research shows, there seem to be receptors in our temporal lobe that gauge our degree of safety, emotional safety. And when we don't feel safe, then either the fees or the flight or fight mechanisms are engaged. And when a child is in that fight or flight mechanism, they can't learn. When we yell at a kid, when we exclude a child, when we uh, isolate them, when we look at them in a harsh way, and use a tone of voice that expresses our irritation, our irritation and incomprehension. 
when we don't understand the child's emotional states or the child feels a lack of attunement with us. All right. I personally love everything that's being said. Um, one of the things that I love most about this speaker is the fact that when he speaks, he lays everything down. Um, and he gives a lot of great uh, resources and a lot of great points. And he has a lot of great ideologies in relationship to what he's talking about. And um, I feel like that's incredibly rare when it comes to a psychologist or someone in the psychiatric field. Um, and it definitely is um, something that pays homage to the amount of time that he spent in the field in which he exists in. And um, that's certainly something to attest to. Like, you... Internet dad. <laughs> Definite internet dad. Uh, I hope you're enjoying this. We're going to go about another five minutes. Five minutes or less. And then we're going to switch gears a little bit. I'm going to get into some articles uh, in relationship to this. And uh, yeah, I hope you're enjoying. Uh, if you are enjoying, definitely consider like, sharing, and subscribing. Um, you'll definitely gain more content like this. Um, I, the, the topic of trauma is something that I love, it's something that I feel uh, deserves a genuine, honest approach, um, and a, an approach backed by logic and, and, and strategy and structure and discipline, um, because healing is, is definitely something that's worth taking seriously. We're actually triggering their defensive states. Now, one of the things that mindfulness practice will do, such as we teach kids, is to actually help them regulate their internal states. But surely, as long as they're immature, and given that they're so connected to adults, and children are necessarily uh, dependent on the environment because they're not, they're not independent, they're not mature, as long as that's the case, and incidentally, this is the truth for a lifetime, that their emotional states, their visceral states, the, the heart and lungs, the receptivity of their nerves, their sense of safety depends purely on the environment and largely on the environment. So it's up to us then to provide that emotional safety for them. And that's much more important than the um, academic learning we're trying to convey. Not that that isn't important, but without that emotional basis to it, it just will not penetrate. So Dr. Stephen Porges, who's done a lot of the work on the neurophysiology that I've conveyed to you some of, he says in an interview, when fear is removed, it's empowering. If your nervous system is safe, you can do lots of interesting things. When your nervous system detects risk and fear, you can't even sit in your room without being hypervigilant. And that depends very much on our internal perception of safety, now the problem is, and this is my final comment, the problem is, is that when children grow up in stressed environments, as increasingly they do, they don't even perceive safety when it's there. They, they, they mistake safety for lack of safety, and unfortunately sometimes they mistake lack of safety for safety. And these are the kids who get into trouble. And so that our job as educators, as healthcare givers, as psychologists, as parents, as anybody that has anything to do whatsoever with children is primarily and first of all to forget about the uh, not 
to forget about them, but, but, but to prioritize. And the first priority has to be the absolute emotional security of our children. Thank you. To me, that deserves like a complete and total standing ovation. Um, I'm pretty sure that the people who got a chance to attend this seminar um, got it a hell of a lot out of it, especially being there in person. Um, in my opinion, he is as, you know, influential as people like, um, what's her name, uh, Louise Hayes and um, the rest of them that are out there. So I'm going to switch gears and hop into the first article. And this article is uh, how does goal cognition influence behavior? After that, we're going to look into how to fall back asleep after a late night wake up. And then we'll end with, are you a wounded healer? Actually, you know what? Scratch that. We're going to end with how to create a beautiful adulthood for yourself. Um, I'm definitely hoping that, hoping, hoping, <laughs> use my words, I'm hoping that you're enjoying the information that you're hearing today. Uh, we've got a lot more that comes from. Alright, loves, definitely stay tuned. And we're back. And we are going to start with how does goal cognition, cognition, yeah, how does goal cognition influence uh, our behavior? I thought this article was pretty interesting. I, I definitely liked the title and wanted to learn more about how, or learn more about this perspective, rather. And this is about a one-minute read by Nicole Hilbig, and it was published on January 3rd. All right, let's get into it. A study revealed that observing others might not only trigger expressions of the same behavior, but also the adoption of the goal that the person pursues with their behavior. Wow. So a lot coming out the gate. Um... This process is called goal cognition. One, it triggers goal-directed behavior that is highly flexible and persistent. We adjust behavior to reach the goal to, to given opportunities and circumstances. Two, achieved goals tend to influence our behavior over a period of time. When uh, activated, it directs attention and behavior to the pursuit of the goal until it is replaced by other competing goals. Three, goal-directed behavior can also automatically uh, uh, 
can automatically outside of our awareness uh, can can occur automatically outside of our awareness. I was like, wait, what? What? What happened? And without recurring additional cognitive resources, goodness, goal cognition would be powerful because it unfolds automatically and results in flex, flexible and persistent goal pursuits. However, it is also uh, vulnerable. Two critical steps are necessary, goal influence and goal adaptation, and both could be uh, interrupted. Interesting. Certainly, certainly interesting. All right, and so from here, we're going to move on to the second article, which is how to fall back asleep after a late night wake up, which is definitely normal, happens all the time to the best of us. I can certainly say that it's happened to me on more than one occasion. I personally get pretty bad uh, insomnia anytime that my monthly rolls around. So this is an article um, by Jamie Scanzeezer. <laughs> Jeez, uh, I didn't mean to butcher that. Uh, published January 28th, 2022. Look, we've all been there. You wake up in the middle of the night and no matter what you do, you cannot fall back asleep. You've uh, counted enough sleep <laughs> I'm sorry, you counted enough sheep to fill a football field and still you're tossing around with the covers. That's the worst feeling in the world. Uh, rather than lying in stillness or worse, grabbing your phone and scrolling through social media, take a bath and follow this advice from a behavioral sleep doctor. Definitely gotta love those sleep doctors. Uh, on the Mind Body Green podcast. She discusses how to quickly fall back asleep after a late night wake up and what you can do to sleep through the night. How to fall back asleep after you wake up in the middle of the night. First step, don't look at time, especially on your phone. I really argue that the clock is just going to make it worse for most people. Says Harris, not only can that affect you but blue light exposure keeps you awake for longer but depending on how late it the how late it reads you might uh, start to feel frustrated about not getting enough sleep which might only make you more feel more worried which is normal uh, rather some recommendations actually getting out of bed rather she recommends actually getting out of bed if you start getting frustrated or your brain's getting getting active and you're not falling back asleep get up go sit somewhere or do something calm and relaxing she says like reading for example don't bring your phone as the blue light isn't doing you any favors but you can turn on a dim light while you engaged in the quiet uh, activity here's the thing though the activity isn't uh itself might make you uh sleepy it's just just might you just might want to pass time says harris uh you may think that the point of the activity is to lull you back to sleep but that's actually a misnomer the point of getting back to getting out of bed is so that you're not teaching yourself that the bed is a place to toss and turn interesting explains harris 
Read, the more you lie in bed and try to force yourself to fall back asleep, the more you find your find you may associate your bed with that lack of rest. The the bed becomes more about the the more about that actual more about that than actual sleep, uh, Harris adds. So sitting on the couch and reading is great, but don't try to force uh, the sleepiness to happen. You're, you're using it as a placeholder and then get back in bed only when you're sleepy again. How to prevent those wake-ups. If you're up, if you do, uh, if you do wake up in the middle of the night, actually getting out of bed may pay off in the long run, but Harris has a couple strategies to prevent this, those 2 a.m. wake-ups in the first place. One of the most, one of those strategies, going to bed later. Yes, really, it's weird, but if you have trouble falling asleep or even, or even with early morning wake up, uh, it'll, it'll have you go to bed later. She says, um, it's the same logic as above. If you don't fall asleep lying in bed and trying to force it to actually make can actually make matters worse. I'd rather you go to sleep that uh, go go I'd rather you go to sleep when you're really asleep, sleepy so that you feel more confident in your ability to sleep. She notes, not only will you be able to be not only will you be likely to be able to fall asleep faster, but chances are you'll have fewer wake-ups too. But if you need a little extra support to make your eyes feel heavy, experts have a few favorite natural sleep aids and bedtime routines to try you to try as you wind down. The takeaway. Waking up in the middle of the night can be frustrating, but don't put too much pressure on yourself to fall asleep instantly. That might only exaggerate the issue. As Harris tells all of her clients who struggle to fall asleep or, or, to str- or who struggle with sleep, uh, if, I don't fa- if I don't sleep well tonight, I'll sleep well tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, definitely by the third day. Really good information. And so we will end with the last article and one more interview, or lecture rather, I'm sorry. How to create a beautiful adulthood for yourself. So this article is by Ann Wright, um, and it was published January 26, 2022. It says, this is both the end goal and curriculum of uh, recreational trauma recovery work. Interesting. And in this article, we'll be talking about Successful recovery from childhood trauma is possible while it is subjective in nature. Part of the recovery work entails acknowledging the psychological and physical 
the psychological and sociological trauma impacts that may still be playing out in one's life. Another key aspect of recovery involves making your insides, matching your insides to your outsides. Absolutely. All right, let's get started. Building a beautiful adulthood is both the end goal and curriculum of uh, recreational trauma recovery work, but it doesn't begin with the healing work. It's done. It doesn't begin when the healing work is done. It actually happens as we're doing the healing work to face and grieve the past. Throughout our attempts to develop the skills to meet our development gaps, we missed and inter- and intric- intricately connected to our attempt to seek out and be influenced by repetitive uh, relational experiences and so forth. Building a beautiful childhood, <laughs> childhood, building a beautiful adulthood is not the last step. It's woven into every step along the way. Building a beautiful adulthood for yourself is the second chance you give yourself after a less than ideal, powerless childhood. But what does it mean to give yourself the best adulthood possible? In my personal and professional experience, this means as much as possible uh, matching your insides to your outside world. Giving yourself a beautiful adulthood also means, in my personal and professional experience, not only identifying what you hunger for on the inside, but also working through psychological and uh, sociological trauma impacts that may consciously or unconsciously be ruling you and leading to, to a disconnect between what you hunger for on the inside and what exists on the outside. Such trauma impacts may include maladaptive beliefs and behaviors, addictions, compulsions, chronic self and or other criticisms, a dysregulated nervous system, hyper and or hyper aroused, attachment wounds, uh, disorganized, anxious, disorganized, anxious or attachment uh, or uh, avoidant attachment patterns and so much and so much more. So as you move through relational trauma recovery work, the task is to help better understand what you long for and hunger for and also to help you cultivate and cultivate more choice and development, develop more agency so that you can be uh, responsive rather than reactive in your life. I love that. I love that. Responsive and not reactive. Um, For example, this might look like helping a woman who experienced poverty in her childhood recognize that she's logically and financially safe now in helping her nervous system understand that she deserves she doesn't have to work 80 plus hours 80 plus hour work weeks to feel safe at the cost of uh, driving her autoimmune system into the ground helping her see that she has a choice and that the past 
is now is past now. Uh, it's really good. Helping a young man who grew up in a family and church community that that decries homosexuality to feel psychologically and logically empowered through enough to own his own sexuality and to actively seek out a community that can validate and honor who he truly is, helping him to understand, assert, and live out who he truly is despite the uh, introjects he may have absorbed. Helping a young person understand that unlike unlike what their family molded for them, healthy, functional relationships are possible and helping them develop more rooted in reality beliefs and dating conflict resolution and intimacy. Helping re-educate and relearn functional relationship principles. And these are just four of our thousands of examples I could list about what it might look like to match your insides to your outsides, to give yourself a beautiful adulthood so that you can be responsive versus reactive in your life. But I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that being able to design a life that matches on the outside what you feel on the inside is a huge privilege that not only that not everyone has. I'm specifically thinking about those who still live inside families, social or cultural systems that deny the full spectrum of their um, of their humanity and who may be financially, logically, or even physically dependent on those people and communities for survival. If you find yourself in a community, family, or culture in which your survival still hinges on fitting in that system, know that I see you and understand that the prompts I just mentioned above may not fully uh, be possible for you to consider yet. Prompts to consider as you work to create a beautiful adulthood for yourself. Do you feel like you have a life that or on the outside matches who you are on the inside? If not, then what's it if not in what ways is that disconnect still showing up where home community place in which ways three in which in what ways might there possibly be disconnects what uh, the next is what career hobbies or endeavors life endeavors is there any aspect that feels encroaches there who relationships with others and ourselves is there any way with anyone including yourself you can feel the impacts of your past possibly getting in your way how money time what stories um interjects or maladaptive beliefs might you still be holding on to that don't match what you would like to see in this area how if at all are you possibly recreating your past and your present? 
where do you feel like you don't have a choice? So going over the where, what, who, how again, uh, where, home, community, place, in what ways might there possibly be disconnects, uh, what, career, hobbies, life endeavors, is there any aspect that feels incredulous here, incredulous here, who, relationships with others and yourself, is there any way with anyone, including yourself, you can feel the impact of your past, probably, excuse me, possibly getting in your way. How, money, time, what stories, introductions, or maladaptive beliefs might you still be holding on to that don't match what you would like to see in this area? I hope these prompts feel helpful to you. Sit with them, but know that there are dozens of other questions to consider when you're doing this work. Absolutely. All right, so that'll that'll be it for today. Um, I think I'm going to play one more lecture and then call it a day. Thank you so much for listening. If you've decided to hang with me up until now, it is always appreciated 110%. Shout out to my real rider dies. You know who you are. And we're going to end with uh, a lecture, or an interview rather, on feeling safe in your own body. Because that is something that's also very, very important. Alright, and this shouldn't be too long. Only about 20 minutes, which isn't crazy. to 
explore health and to, to understand this new paradigm, they would come with a basket of prior mental health diagnoses. They'd want to understand what was really going on. They could find ways to very quickly tell them a new story in an hour and a half or two hour consultation. And one of the stories that they came up with was a story about, so there's this guy running down the road, like wildly looking around, barefoot, screaming. And I asked them, you know, what do you think of this guy? They said, well, he seems crazy. Should we help him avoid him? They said, well, I'll avoid him. And I say, so coming around the corner, you see a fully grown adult lion chasing him. Now what do you think? They said, well, he seems, he seems normal now. And I said, if you could help him, would you help him? They said, yes. So they help him. And what's instructive for me in that is that the man in the story is identical. So there's no difference. Uh, it's just that difference between us saying that they've got a mental health problem and not is an understanding of the context. And of course that's uh, what I do in my book with the line. And people, some people connect with that idea. There is this sense that people can understand that we're all to a greater or lesser degree running away from some invisible line where the context has been lost. So my first question to you is really about that. It's about what is the mechanism how exactly is it that the body keeps the score? Well, um, we have a brain that helps us, our bodies to survive. And so basically we learn how to get along and we learn how to manage our lives and we learn where moments and where whatever people. And uh, it's developing where it gets I would recommend Calmigo if you have anxiety because it is very effective and I love using it. I was waiting at the finish line in 2013 when I witnessed both bombs uh, explode before me. 
And at the time, our children were very young. So when I got home from Massachusetts, I had a two-year-old to run after and a six-month-old that I was still nursing and I was taking care of everybody and I failed to take care of myself. The way that anxiety um, affects me most is I hold my breath. This device helps me to start breathing again and taking deep breaths, ground myself, and soon I start to feel better. The Calmigo really helps me in the middle of the night. Oftentimes wake up from a nightmare that I don't even remember, but I'm having anxiety or a panic attack-like symptoms. And so it's something I can just easily grab and use, and usually I fall asleep while I'm using it. I love that it's easy to use, it's small, it's, it's um, convenient to take with you, and I absolutely love that it's safe for children to use as well. I carry it every day with me. I have a little bag and I have all my tools in there and this one lives in there too. I write and share my story on a blog called Still Blooming Me where I share natural PTSD resources that have helped me heal. I would recommend Call Me Go if you have anxiety because it is very effective and I love using it. contact with these civilizations and you do not need the government. Look at the evidence. It's happening now. It appears to have some anomalies. The father was not homo sapien. Eight immortal kings of Samaria lived a total of 241,200 years. And a lot of evidence has been left behind that they traveled and circumnavigated the entire planet. They may have even been interplanetary. certain exercises so the consequences on the basis of what I've learned and if you learn somewhere along the line that something may suddenly happen to you and you'll uh, know that maybe you'll get destroyed you could get made you feel completely helpless your brain starts getting ready for something terrible to happen and you start spending your energy on trying to control yourself before that energy that explosive emergency part of your brain blows up and you become a defensive person you spend a lot of time trying to keep control of yourself and yet the moment that primitive part of your brain which basically has no cognition there's nothing thinking there's an automatic animal type response the moment you feel 
feels like, oh my god, this is happening again. And you start acting as if you're getting hurt, as if you're getting assaulted, etc. etc. And when that happens, um, you react excessively or you shut yourself down. And not only does it do terrible things to you, in that you start feeling like I cannot control myself. So you start really getting a very negative idea about yourself, but the world about you starts shutting down uh, because you react in a way that other people don't react. And you become angry when other people don't become angry, or you shut down when other people are dancing, and suddenly you behave like a terrified person. And so your whole social environment starts reacting to you like, uh, that's not getting both. It has major effects on your personality and on your friendship patterns and your social patterns. And so, can I just yeah? like can I just break that down yeah. a little um, because it sounds like what you're saying is that there's there's two discrete problems here. The first one is that the brain starts to learn to expect a reality that's not necessarily there. Maybe that's the and as a result, it, it starts to do things which are highly appropriate if there was. At some point, it would have been appropriate, yeah. yeah. It's not like we've malfunctioned per se, because that would be a great function to have if the, if the scenario was real. But the, somehow, <coughs> information has become corrupt. Um, the expectation has taken over from reality. And so yeah. Once that process is on board, then a secondary factor begins to occur, which is that how does this then affect our relationships? Because if I look like I'm reacting to something that's not there, a third party can see it's not there. So they right. see as a difficult person to have a, have a relationship with. And then you're saying that's a compounding factor because the degradation of the relationship then reinforces the original problem that we're not really getting on very well with our reality. Correct. And that's the outside thing is people start shunning you, but the inside thing is that you start shunning yourself. And you think about yourself, I'm a defective sh shame. I feel very ashamed of who I am and that I have these reactions that I cannot control. And then you start compensating for it and excessively nice to everybody to make up for the fact that you have left the door at some point or you start avoiding people or you sort of go live by yourself and you start drinking because you can no longer trust yourself. But at the core is that you get stuck somewhere and that the part of your brain that's supposed to that is in charge all the time doesn't know that the threat is over. Yeah. And so the critical issue Coming it is to get that sense of time back on the line and go like, oh, okay, I was really brutalized as a kid, or I was raped, and it was terrible, really terrible what happened to me. But today I'm talking to Benjamin on Zoom, and it's okay. Uh, nobody's raping me, nobody's attacking me, and I can focus on the present. But if you're traumatized, large part of your mind 
Jewish Navy Gordon. When will it happen again? And are they going to do it? And can I trust myself? Because my, I cannot trust either my own system or the people around me. Okay, but you're, you're articulating the problem through the language of uh, the, the kind of prefrontal cortex, if you like, saying I'm thinking this, I'm thinking that. And uh, it, is a, it is a problem of, of time, but your book is called Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. I think that um, there's more to the story because it's not really just that there's a, a sort of cognitive expectation. You can't easily defeat it by a cognitive reframing because there's something deeper going on. Exactly. Exactly. So, so you know, as Westerners, we think that we're rational human beings. Of course, our history completely contradicts that we are rational human beings. When we have been brutalized each other, had terrible things to each other since time, time immemorial, but our basic notion about ourselves is still we are rational people and we can work things out. And that we are, but we think that we are in charge of ourselves and can control our behavior. The reality is that about three quarters of our brain. Uh, it's the back of our brain that we have basically no control over, and that's in charge of your body. We have a brain in order to steer our body and take care of our body. And so at some point, you need to go to the bathroom. And you can say to your primitive brain, don't be stupid, don't waste your time going to the bathroom. But when you need to go to the bathroom, you need to go to the bathroom. And the primitive brain says, I'm hungry, I need to eat. Um, but you only have to eat. And if you want to sleep, you have to sleep. And so, and you have to breathe. And so basically, the whole big part back of your brain is there, just like your dog and just like your cockroach, is there to steer your ways in the world. And as humans, we got a little frontal lobe on top of it to explain what we do and to understand what we do. It's a marvelous part of the brain. I wouldn't knock it at all. But the problem is that um, if you, let's say, like Benjamin, uh, if you happen to molested by somebody who has a Dutch accent. Now you talk to me and you feel threatened and angry triggered by my accent. And you can say to yourself, don't get angry with the guy, don't get freaked. Pure Deli Caramel Squares makes life a bite better. But you're, the back of your brain is impervious to irrational stuff. And you will have that intense reaction to, let's say, my accent or any number of things. Um, and much of the time, your frontal lobe will not even be able to understand why you freak out so much. And then only when you go to therapy and you go take this out, you say, oh, the reason why this guy freaks me out because he just talked like that uncle who molested me with his accent. But these are automatic reactions that come from that map that we get created for us in the back of our brain as we grow up. So would it be fair to say this is what some people refer to as the limbic hijack? You could call it that, but that, that's not unreasonable. That's not only the limbic, it goes even deeper than that. Huh? Uh, Stem, that's a arousal reptilian brain, and as you know, when people get really, really uh, traumatized, they become, can, can become extremely 
out extremely heavy, very hard to control. Uh, and then, of course, what happens is that we have these systems where our nervous system communicates with each other. And so we have this mirror neural system. And here you're sitting in front of me, and you look really nice and peaceful. And uh, so I go, oh, and your nicefulness and your peacefulness uh, becomes part of me. And the kinder you look, and the sweeter your voice is, the calmer I feel, the safer I feel. And, but if you start getting, if I start hearing some tension in your voice, you will print in your large eyes that you get frightened and fearful. I pick that up, and I start mirroring your response. And before too long, you'll be fighting with each other, because this, that primitive part of your brain gets activated. And our frontal lobe will find out all kinds of excuses why I should hate you. So, really, part of the problem here is that we are, in our internal dialogues in our heads, we, we're usually persuaded that we are just one person. So I think of myself as Benjamin and I chat to myself in my head. But there's a huge amount of activity going on in the posterior part of my brain, which is hardwired into the autonomic nervous system, which goes throughout my entire body. You've got two main pathways. I've got signals coming from the body and going to the body. And that's all happening on its own, um, without the governance, if you like, of the executive branch upstairs, uh, which inherits whatever goes on in the back of the brain in the body. And then maybe that, that doesn't fit in. And then you're saying that that can actually stimulate itself uh, a, a reaction in the posterior parts of someone else's brain that you're trying to relate to. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But, but the back of our brain, uh, the survival brain, is there to, to help us to survive. And it's very powerful. And so the moment that that back of the brain gets a feeling of like, you better get out of here or you're going to be killed, <clears throat> uh, your frontal lobe can work like crazy to say, don't do it, don't do it. But the, the, there's enormous power to that back of your brain. And so what we also slowly discover is that the engine of all this is in that survival part of the brain. And then what we discovered, although people have discovered it over and over again in various cultures, is that you know, if you help the body to feel safe, the mind starts feeling safe also. And, uh, you know, I had my great lesson about that in South Africa when I hang out with Bishop Tutu for a while. The country was about to explode, and you know, the Tutu Mandela, all those people, they knew like we're going to be born in a country like India that's going to explode the moment it's all over. And so Tutu and the other guy, Tutu more than anybody else, took it upon himself to try to help people to feel calm and not live by the trauma. And I saw Tutu at work, and it was spectacular. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening with me up until now. Uh, so we're going to go for about another minute, and uh, we'll be finished with this, this podcast today. I thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me up until now. Um, I hope you were able to learn something new and that you were able to find some really great information. Maybe take some notes and carry it on with you in your personal life. Um, so, yeah, uh, I definitely am finding some really great information personally and um this is 
has been a really great episode filled with a bunch of wonderful information. Um, so yeah, we're going to get back into it and, um, pretty soon I'll, uh, be making a couple announcements and we'll be done for the day. So thank you so much. I hope everyone has a fabulous and amazing week. Uh, I think this is like the last, yeah, last couple days of January and we'll be smooth into the first week of February. Um, Black History Month is going to be exciting. Uh, I'll probably try to, um keep it pretty black centered uh during uh black history month just for the first three or four weeks or three weeks rather because there's only a few weeks of um february that's available but uh i'm definitely interested in keeping it black and keeping it proud so yeah let's get back into this this wonderful interview or exchange rather this exchange is back and forth a sense of synchrony and safety and pleasure that came through rhythms and movements. And what to me is really interesting is that when you travel around the world, is that people around the world have, most people have traditions that in response to terrible events, people move, sing, and hold each other. But that somehow disappeared in Northern Europe, except during a national tragedy, together in your cathedrals and you sing, oh God, our help in ages last, and when you sing together, you start feeling calm again. But psychotherapy has never really bought into that. Alright, loves, thank you so much for listening. Um, that'll be all that I've got for the episode today. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to mention was that uh, I thought that it was really interesting that he decided to end off with that information specifically because um, when you are a person who's dealing with throes of trauma, specifically what you're looking for is comfort you know, and a way, to, um, a way to soothe yourself. Um, and in my opinion, I think a lot of times when you're on fight or flight mode and you're dealing with, you know, some high functioning trauma uh, and some trauma that's affecting your nervous system. I, to anyone going through anything like that, the first advice that I would have for you is that, you know, there's serious importance in prioritizing play um, and getting back to your inner child and Letting your inner child live again. Um, I think that we, we highly underestimate the importance of prioritizing pleasure uh, as well as work and as well as getting things done. Um, and we kind of un unprioritize um, being still, being quiet, uh, being in the moment and being present. And these are also things that take time and they take repetitive um practice uh, because these, these are habits that don't just happen overnight definitely taking that time to be quiet and be one with self and to be present in the moment is has 
beautiful long-term impacts in relationship to the health of, of a person. And the, the second thing that I wanted to address was the fact that I'm definitely interested at this point in naming um, my tribe. I don't have a ton of people, but I have enough, in my opinion. Um, and I'm really interested in the idea of calling my tribe good people. Uh, I started out with good people, and I think that good people is a, a wonderful name in which to call everyone because you all are good people um, and in my opinion I think that pretty much sums up uh, in a really elegant way in which uh, in a really elegant way um, the people who enjoy my content um, and then added I was also interested in because um, I, I did a, um, a poll on I think it was Twitter and on Facebook, and the um, the feedback that I got was um, Frequency Family. Um, and so, between Frequency Family and Good People, I think is what I'm going to settle on for the year of 2022 moving forward. Um, and I really hope that you all enjoy it and that you all like it. Definitely be looking out for merch in the next uh, three to six months. Um, I've been working dutifully in putting that together. Um, so you guys are going to have some good stuff in relationship to um, uh, the, the name and the verbiage associated with uh, the community. And also thank you so much for joining me and being a part of my community because I... Like, where would I be without such, an, such a beautiful audience? Um, I love how uh, everybody finds something for themselves um, and that everybody is, is so interested in the content that I have to bring forth. Uh, I think the conversation of trauma is not one that is given enough respect and um, this is really just my opportunity to put some respect on the name of trauma in the name of growth, healing, evolving, and expanding. And uh, so that's all I've got for this episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me and listen to what I've got as far as information today. I hope you found something helpful. I'm pretty sure you did. Um, and yeah, definitely consider uh, reaching out any feedback that I get from uh, my fellow tribe is definitely feedback that is appreciated so um, there's that and from there that's all I got for today thank you so much for listening in Madam Butterfly out